Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and I've used my recent shelter-in-place time to research a podcast that you might find unusually interesting. It's about the 1918 influenza pandemic in Connecticut, the deadliest disease to ever hit the state, and one that, like COVID-19, stopped life as people knew it in its tracks. Where did it come from? How did it spread? Who did it affect the most? How did the medical community respond to it? How did the state and local governments respond to it? What social distancing measures were taken? And how did its impact change Connecticut and its people? I asked the questions we're asking about today's pandemic to the pandemic of a century ago and found history, as always, to be an important reference point. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. Connecticut and the Pandemic of 1918, coming up now on Grading the Nutmeg. The influenza pandemic of 1918 and 1919 was the most disastrous onslaught of infectious disease in Connecticut since the epidemics that devastated Native American tribes in the 1600s. With 115,000 recorded cases and 9,000 deaths, the Spanish flu took a greater toll on the people of Connecticut than any war before or since. Today, the economic and social disruptions of the current COVID-19 pandemic in Connecticut are even greater than those of a century ago. But our statewide isolation and social distancing practices have kept the mortality rates and caseloads from COVID-19, though still frighteningly high, exponentially lower than they were in 1918. The 1918 flu epidemic in Connecticut was a first-order human tragedy. Like the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, the 1918 flu was a new and much more virulent version of a disease well-known to Connecticut's. The state's first officially recorded cases of influenza, which people then commonly called the grip, had hit the state in 1889, causing only four deaths. But after that, periodic bouts of flu spread sickness across the state in 16 of the 29 years leading up to the 1918 pandemic. Though influenza was not at that time tracked as a reportable disease, that is, a disease so dangerous its progress had to be closely monitored by public health officials, its impact on annual death rates, especially in the two years leading up to the pandemic, was significant significant, but nothing like the disease that arrived at New London's Fort Trumbull at the beginning of September 1918. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. 
The United States was at war, and New London was a hub of the American war effort. Home to a new submarine base, a naval training station, the headquarters of the Cutter Service we now call the Coast Guard, and a transfer station for Navy men heading abroad to serve in World War I, New London was teeming with young men who, it turned out, would be primary targets of the new flu strain. The first cases of the flu surfaced at the Fort Trumbull Experimental Station on September 1st, when several U.S. Navy crewmen from ships recently returned from the war in Europe came down with the chills, backache, terrible headache, and coughing symptomatic of the disease's onset. The men were sent for treatment to New London's recently activated U.S. Naval Hospital. Shortly thereafter, cases appeared among the personnel at the U.S. submarine base at Groton, then back among civilian employees at Fort Trumbull, where the first cases had broken out. By the 10th of September, nearly 100 flu-stricken seamen had been admitted to the Navy Hospital. On that day, more than 300 men arrived at the wartime base at New London State Pier from the Boston Navy Yard, where the flu was already raging and the city's fate was set. More than 7,000 sailors were then housed in the homes of New London's civilian population, so the disease spread rapidly from sickened sailors throughout the community. By month's end, New London reported 900 cases of a disease that seemed nowhere near peaking. Unlike the COVID-19 coronavirus, which entered Connecticut from the New York City area and then spread north and eastward to the rest of the state, the 1918 flu pandemic followed a nearly opposite path. From its start in New London, it spread northward into Norwich and the cities and towns of eastern Connecticut, then west to Hartford, the New Britain region, and south to New Haven, Bridgeport, and the rest of Fairfield County. The Norwich Bulletin reported on September 14th, the epidemic of grip, which has been prevalent in the eastern states and New England, has struck onto Norwich, New London, and the vicinity with considerable force. The paper urged people with symptoms to call a doctor immediately and insisted that anyone ill should be kept isolated. The disease is the most contagious form of grip, it said, and every means to prevent the spreading of this disease should be taken. But spread the disease did, following the automobile routes into the interior out of New London to Wyndham, Putnam, Burnham, Rockville, and Hartford. Aided by the visits home of infected but asymptomatic soldiers on leave from Camp Devons in Ayers, Massachusetts, it also reached Wallingford, Hartland, and Danbury. Ultimately, with the exception of a handful of rural Connecticut communities, every city and town in Connecticut was infected, and from 30 to 40 percent of the state's population caught the virus. Since 
Since the disease had appeared to enter the United States with military men returning from Europe, most people believe the source of the pandemic was Spain, one of the neutral nations in World War I. And the country also believed to be the source of an earlier flu pandemic in 1893. Its identification with Spain was reinforced by the fact that the Spanish press had widely reported the influenza outbreak in their country earlier that year, while Europe's warring countries, for reasons of military security, had kept news of the disease tightly under wraps. Since Americans had only heard of a flu outbreak in Spain, they assumed that Spain was the source of the disease the returning doughboys brought with them. Recent research, however, has shown that the 1918 influenza might better be nicknamed the Kansas flu, as it first appeared in military bases in Kansas in early 1918 among troops who were soon deployed to the European theater. American troops not only took the disease to Europe with them, they later brought it back. And the disease that killed so many Connecticans in 1918 and 1919, though called the Spanish flu, was an American import. Between September and January of 1918, the pandemic rolled through the state in two waves, east to west and north to south, peaking in different regions on different dates. New London County saw the maximum number of new cases on October 2nd, while Fairfield County reached its peak on October 23rd. The first wave of the disease was by far the worst. Over 90% of the 115,000 reported cases and 7,600 of the state's 9,000 influenza deaths occurred before the end of 1918. The late December-January rebound, though deadly, had a much smaller impact. October of 1918 was by far the worst month of the pandemic, and it proved to be a public health nightmare. 80% of the total caseload and nearly 60% of the fatalities occurred in that month alone. Public health officials realized the gravity of the situation early. They declared influenza a reportable disease throughout the state on September 18th. Local and state public health departments, as well as many of the state's wartime defense agencies, immediately shifted their focus to helping fight a war on the home front against a new and deadly viral disease. Instituting statewide infection control and social distancing measures was a primary concern using press reports, pamphlets, posters, placards, and leaflets by the thousands, widely distributed by local health departments and Red Cross chapters, the people of Connecticut were barraged with messages telling them how best to protect themselves from the flu and what to do if they got it. In one such message, Connecticuts were provided a simple nine-step approach to keep from catching the disease. One, don't inhale any person's breath. Two, avoid persons who cough and sneeze. Three, don't visit close, poorly ventilated places. Four, keep warm and drive. Five, if you get wet, change your clothes at once. Six, don't use drinking cups or towels that other people have used. Seven, for the protection of others, 
Cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. 8. Clean your teeth and mouth frequently. 9. Don't spit on the floor. Posters tied flu prevention measures to the war effort. Help fight the grip, Kaiser Wilhelm's ally warned one. It added additional preventive measures to be followed, including get fresh air and sunshine, avoiding worry, fear, and fatigue, and avoiding crowded places, especially street and trolley cars. Those who had caught the flu were given instructions on how to keep from giving it to others. Stay at home on the first indication of a cold. Don't receive visitors while sick or recovering. Don't leave home until after all symptoms have gone. Don't sneeze, spit, or cough in public places. And don't hesitate to complain against careless coughers and spitters. Both the State Department of Health and the Connecticut State Council of Defense work together to urge people to do your bit to stop the grip. How effective such measures were varied from place to place, depending on population density, community organization, degree of industrialization, cooperation among local businesses and industries, and other variables. Willimantic, which had experienced one of the highest rates of sickness in the state, reported on October 10th, the prompt action of the town and city authorities in combating the influenza epidemic, together with the assistance of the American Thread Company and the cooperation of the general public, has already led to an improvement of conditions and a retarding of the spread of the disease. The day before, however, the Times of Bridgeport, which was experiencing the full force of the viral onslaught, had declared voluntary social distancing measures a nearly total failure. It required only a glance at sidewalks and gutters this morning, the paper said, to show that spitting is more prevalent than usual. In the theaters last night, other observers noted hurricanes of coughing. The warning signs have disappeared from many trolley cars. The overcrowded trolley car appeared to be one of the most dangerous points of contagion. In morning and evening cars, men and women were packed in like sardines. One of the first and most important questions public health officials faced was whether to close schools and other public gathering places, such as churches and movie theaters. Though it recognized that attendance at public gatherings renders one most liable to contract this disease, the state health department nevertheless elected not to order the closure of schools. Schools should not be closed, they wrote, as experience in nearly all epidemics has shown that pupils are safer in a well-ventilated school and under the observation of teachers than when schools are closed and the children allowed to intermingle in homes and upon the streets. If it were possible to keep school children at home, State Department of Health Commissioner Dr. J.T. Black wrote, there might be some advantage in closing the schools, but experience has shown that when schools are closed, the children visit each other's homes to such an extent that the object in closing the schools is rendered practically nil. Teachers, Black said, 
could render great service in controlling the influenza by monitoring children as they entered school and sending home those who showed any signs of illness. The state took a similar stance in regard to theaters, arguing that the entertainment provided by theaters has a good psychological effect upon the human system and tends to raise the resisting powers of the body against infections, state health officials said they would not close theaters, provided, however, that theaters displayed a series of three slides on their movie screens before every performance. The first slide read, the health authorities will close this theater unless spitting, coughing, or sneezing is omitted during performances. This slide was immediately followed by the second, which read, Sneezing and coughing in this theater may spread influenza. Be fair and stay home if you have a cold. The third slide read, If you have a cold, retire now. Do not endanger health of others and save yourself embarrassment. If, despite these warnings, sneezing or coughing still occurred, the show was to be stopped and a fourth slide put on the screen. The person sneezing or coughing will please retire now in the interest of health and those sitting near him. Places of worship were also allowed to remain open, though ministers were urged to become part of the state's disease education program. The state asked pastors to explain the nature of the disease to their congregations and to impress on their parishioners the need to refrain from coughing or sneezing during services. Pastors were urged to ask those who did cough or sneeze to remove themselves from the sanctuary. Even the state's undertakers, already overwhelmed by the surge in demand for their services, were informed by officials that funerals were to be strictly limited only to relatives of the deceased and those necessary to conduct the services. In addition, to prevent wakes for the deceased, no chairs were to be set up in funeral homes during visitations. Funeral directors probably welcomed these restrictions as they were facing an unprecedented workload. Waterbury experienced a coffin shortage during the pandemic. Elsewhere in the state, cabinet makers took up casket making to help address the state's short supply. Though the state in principle opted for keeping public gathering places open, it recognized that local conditions might render their closure necessary and left that as a local option. During the height of local outbreaks, many communities overrode the state policy. Faced with overwhelming disease pressure, New London, for example, closed all schools, theaters, churches, dance halls, bowling alleys, and other public gathering places on September 25th. Danbury closed its schools on October 4th, its theaters the next day. Small towns such as Moosop also shuttered their theater as they saw the cases overwhelming local ability to respond. 
the state's medical community, which had furnished many physicians and nurses for the war effort overseas, was from the start understaffed and overwhelmed. Community after community found itself with not enough hospital beds for those who needed them and not enough doctors and nurses to treat those who filled the beds they had. The state responded to this medical crisis a number of ways. Commandeering country clubs, barracks, dance halls, parish houses, high schools, and even private homes, it set up more than 30 emergency hospitals across the state not just in cities such as Bridgeport, New Haven, Hartford, and New London, but also more rural towns such as Winstead, Canton, Thomaston, and Stonington. On three separate occasions in October, the State Department of Health issued calls to physicians and nurses from Connecticut who had taken higher paying nursing jobs elsewhere to answer their home state's call to service. You are needed in Connecticut to help overcome the influenza epidemic, the first call to nurses read. Don't leave your home state folks to die while you seek a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow somewhere else. Whatever effects such pleas may have had, faced with a pandemic of 1918's proportions, the response was insufficient. On October 16th, the state began seeking untrained women to volunteer for nursing duty. Bridgeport's public health officer put out a call asking only for women with courage and common sense. A knowledge of nursing or medicine is not necessary. Relentless in its quest for assistance and experiencing the highest disease pressure of any New England state, Connecticut was able to enlist the services of 48 physicians and 101 nurses to serve for various periods of the epidemic. They came from federal agencies like the U.S. Public Health Service, private agencies such as the Red Cross, and private practice. A substantial minority of the professionals were volunteers. Assigned to both the regular and emergency hospitals and to helping the ill but unhospitalized, they helped the state get through the worst single medical crisis in its history. In addition to the search for medical personnel to treat the disease, Connecticut participated in the quest to find a cure for the disease. Doctors from Tufts Medical School and Boston University developed a vaccine they hoped would be useful against the disease. Over 4,000 doses were administered in Connecticut at industrial sites and in state institutions where the effectiveness of the vaccine could be monitored. Despite the developer's high hopes, however, the vaccine appeared to have minimal influence on either preventing the disease or moderating its effects on the afflicted. Newspapers during the epidemic were filled with both information and disinformation. Some, especially in the early days of the outbreak, downplayed the flu's dangers in an effort to calm readers' fears and prevent panic. The Norwich Bulletin through the first 20 days of September dutifully reported the seriousness of the pandemic in Massachusetts while generally ignoring its spread at home. Similarly, the New Britain Herald reported under the headline Quigley Sick, Not Spanish Influenza, 
that the city's mayor, George Quigley, was ill and at home, but just from ordinary old-fashioned grip and not the fear-inducing Spanish flu. The intent was clearly to allay fears of the pandemics reaching their city. Most Connecticut papers, however, including the New Britain Herald, once the pandemic hit in full force, followed the disease closely and reported on its impact in their towns. Advertisers, especially those with remedies to sell, were quick to capitalize on the contagion. The makers of Oil of Hylamel, for example, ran an ad that looked and read like a regular newspaper story, with the headline, Health Board Gives Warning of Influenza, Asked People to Take Proper Treatment Promptly. The ad described the symptoms and many dangers of the influenza in detail, but then noted, probably no better or more effective treatment could be followed than to get from the nearest drugstore a complete Hylamel outfit consisting of a bottle of the pure oil of Hylamel and a little vest pocket hard rubber inhaling device into which a few drops of the oil are poured. This is all you will need. Put the inhaler in your mouth and breathe its air deep into the passages of your nose, throat, and lungs. Every particle of air that enters your breathing organs will thus be charged with an antiseptic germ-killing balsam that will absolutely destroy the germs of influenza. Another product that came into its own during the 1918 pandemic is still widely used as a cold therapy today. Vicks VapoRub, a cold relief compound formulated by a druggist in North Carolina and originally marketed as Vicks Magic Croup Salve, used the same pseudo-news story advertising approach to triple its sales to nearly $3 million a year. When VapoRub is applied over throat and chest, one of its many ads in the Bridgeport Times stated, the medicated vapors loosen the phlegm, open the air passages, and stimulate the mucous membrane to throw off the germs. Such medicines, like the medical treatments of the day, may have offered comfort and reassurance, but they did little or nothing to blunt the impact of the pandemic that raged through Connecticut for five awful months. In the end, after the second wave of the flu subsided in the spring of 1919, a battered state was left to assess both the pandemic's impact and its social, psychological, and economic costs. 115,567 Connecticuts had contracted the most virulent form of influenza the state had ever seen. For 8,907 of them, the disease had been fatal. This was more people than had died in the war in Europe. And ironically, many of the Connecticuts who died of flu were in the same age group as the men who died in the war. And as in COVID-19, the victims were disproportionately male, to the tune of 58% of the afflicted. One of the compounding tragedies of the 1918 epidemic was that unlike COVID-19, which disproportionately kills older members of the population, 
The 1918 epidemic focused on the very young and those in the prime of life. More than half of the influenza fatalities were among people between the ages of 20 and 39, and their loss compounded the demographic impact of the war deaths in World War I and challenged the state to reconceive of its future as one with a measurably smaller group of the most productive citizens. In 1918, Connecticut experienced its highest death rate in 40 years. In the wake of the influenza epidemic, more than 3,000 children lived in homes with only one parent. Another 200 were completely orphaned and nearly all required some kind of social service support. The state's wartime boom economy also faltered, transitioning into a post-war economic recession, a collapse from which it would recover only to join the nation in facing the Great Depression of 1929 and after. Psychologically, no one forgot their experience of the pandemic. For those afflicted, the memories were most painful. Sister Alexine McCullough, who lived in Bridgeport during the pandemic, vividly remembered at 85, running into the house when workers heading for their jobs at the Remington Arms plant would pass by for fear she would catch the disease from them. At 83 years old, Joseph Camp remembered being an eight-year-old hospitalized victim in Hartford, saying, nurse, nurse, I'm sweating, and being told, you're supposed to sweat. Most painful was his memory of coming home after he recovered, going into his house and saying, where's Ma, where's Ma? Only to be told by his sister, that their mother had died from the flu. Today, as we shelter in place in our homes, waiting for the transition back to the new normal at the end of our era's pandemic, we can perhaps gain some solace from the knowledge that science gave us the tools to keep this pandemic's death rate, though terrible, much lower than its predecessor of a century ago. And that we can, with some confidence, look forward to a vaccine in the future that will blunt the force of this new and terrible infectious disease. Like the 1918 flu pandemic, the coronavirus has changed everything. But like the 1918 flu pandemic, it too will go away. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Kai Engel, Mike Durek, and Scott Holmes for the excellent Creative Commons music from the Free Music Archive. Hear more great Connecticut history stories by subscribing to Grading the Nutmeg on your favorite podcast app or just by saying Google or Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. And for more great Connecticut history in print, read and subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This episode was written and produced by me, Walt Woodward, and I hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.